The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. It's great to be with you this morning. A warm welcome to each and every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ today. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. I hope your hearts and your bellies are a bit fuller and that you had a chance to reconnect with some family and friends. We were in Fort Gibson earlier this week having a good time with the in-laws, and then my family is here this morning again, so it's great to have them with us, and I'm just grateful that you're all here this morning. I want to invite you next week, January 5th, next Sunday, to the brand new sermon series we will be beginning in January 2020 in the book of Jonah. So we will be spending four weeks in Jonah all of January, and Jonah's a fantastic, really little book you can read in about eight minutes. And so in preacherly fashion, we're going to stretch that out to four weeks of content But I'm actually really excited. It's a tiny book, but it's outsized. It's huge characters. It's great plot twists. It's just a fantastic. There's a lot for us to dig into together. So I hope you'll be here next Sunday. Ben's going to kick us off in Jonah chapter 1 next week, next decade, according to who you're listening to. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 together this morning for the final Sunday of 2019. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks to you this morning. We give thanks for your salvation. We give thanks for Jesus Christ, the announcement of the good news in his life, in his suffering, in his death, and in his resurrection and ascension. We give thanks for the gift of your word, and God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us, would illuminate these words in our hearing. 
and I ask that you would give me the gift of preaching. Help us to put into practice this good news we've been given about you in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've never been naked in public. And I don't plan to be. Rest easy. Although Ben did talk recently about preaching in a Speedo or something. So I don't think either here I have any plans in that regard. But I have been publicly naked in dreams. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you find yourself, you don't have any clothes on, and you're out in kind of a public area? You're in a restaurant or you're at your old high school or something. It, I've had those. They're kind of unsettling. Even in dreams, it's, it's a bit strange and even frightening, isn't it? It's, it's a bit unsettling. And while I assume and hope none of us have been naked in public, there have been those who are naked in public, even on, in plays or musicals. Um, for instance, Daniel Radcliffe, an actor, was in a Broadway show where he had to be naked for a scene. And so he went to his friend, another actor, Gary Oldman, for advice because Gary Oldman had also been through this. He'd been naked in a show. And so he's like, what's, what's this like? I'm kind of worried here. And he was like, well, you'll be terrified the first night. You'll be terrified the second night. And then you won't care. And apparently that's how it went. Daniel said, night one, terrified. Night two, terrified. And then I didn't care. But the reason he got advice from Gary Oldman was because he was someone who had been through it. He was someone who had walked through that experience of vulnerability and unsettling fear. He was someone who had been there. And our text this morning is about someone who has been there. It's about somebody who has been through it, not nakedness on a Broadway stage, but someone who has been through the nakedness of human existence. Someone who has been through that vulnerability of flesh and blood human life. Someone who has experienced that fear, that unsettling experience of life in flesh and blood. Our text this morning is about Jesus Christ. And Hebrews communicates to us that God in Christ is not a God who is aloof and unaware and distant, but a God who in Christ has been through it. A God who knows. A God who in Christ has suffered even. That's the Jesus we find in the book of Hebrews. And so I want to jump back in looking for that Jesus in verse 10 of chapter 2. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So to really appreciate the radical nature of this verse, we've got to back up and get the context of what's happening in Hebrews because Hebrews is a fantastic book that combines some of the most exalted language about Jesus with also some of the most lowly, human, earthy language about Christ as well. 
In fact, Hebrews begins in chapter one, verse one, long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. This is one of the most stunning passages in all of scripture. Because the message that we get here from Hebrews this, this passage is an anchor for many in, in whatever questions we have about God, whatever doubts we have, whatever we wrestle with. This passage tells us God is exactly like Jesus. God is exactly like Jesus. He's the exact imprint of his very being. And that is who God is, and that is who Jesus is. And so Hebrews gives us this high, exalted picture of Jesus as the exact imprint, the glory and the beauty and the majesty of who God is. And then it comes down to our verse in chapter 2. That it was fitting that God should make the pioneer, Jesus, of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It was fitting, striking words to talk about the suffering of God's exact imprint. It was fitting, it was becoming, it was proper. Not words that really anyone in first century Greco-Roman society would use about God coming in flesh and having that flesh torn. Sure, there were myths of heroes or lowercase g gods kind of dying and freeing people in those days, but the distinction of Jesus Christ is the absolute degradation and humiliation of the cross. No one would have envisioned in that society it being fitting for God to be bullied around and tortured and completely shamed in the way that Jesus Christ is in the crucifixion. You've probably heard of the Austrian founder of modern psychology, Sigmund Freud. Freud was a famous atheist. He's considered one of the three kind of masters of suspicion with Nietzsche and Marx. And one of Freud's most famous critiques of religion comes in a book called The Future of an Illusion. And about halfway through, he starts kind of asking this question, like, if religious beliefs and doctrines, which he believes are false, you know, if they're false, why do they have so much purchasing power? Why are they so pervasive and influential and effective? And the way he answers this question, he says, these, these doctrines, they are illusions, fulfillments of the oldest, strongest, and most fervent wishes of humanity. The secret of their strength is in the strength of those wishes. So Freud's saying that you know, religious beliefs, doctrines, they're, they're human wish fulfillment. Strong desires that humanity has always had and they're fulfilled in these false beliefs. Be that as it may, if that is religion... We're confounded when we come 
to God in Christ on the cross. What deep human desire, what wish is being fulfilled in absolute humiliation, shame, torture, being beat, spat upon, embarrassed, whipped, tortured, nailed to wooden planks, suspended for all to see, losing control of bodily functions, bleeding out, suffocating, dying. It's hard to imagine a wish that's being fulfilled there. As Fleming Rutledge writes, she says, the cross is in no way religious. The cross is by a very long way the most irreligious object ever to find its way into the heart of faith. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. And yet, the writer of Hebrews and the early church has come to believe somehow it was fitting And he continues in verse 11, for the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Verse 11, that's really striking. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father, one origin. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. If we have trouble believing anything about Jesus these days, it's probably his divinity. Right, modern Western folks, we, we can get tripped up on the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus being divine. And it's interesting because in the early centuries of the church, it was pretty much the opposite. Mostly the trouble then was not believing in Jesus' divinity, but in his humanity. They could imagine a divine figure, they could imagine a Son of God, but the idea that God became flesh and blood... It was a stumbling block to think about God becoming a human being. And yet, here in Hebrews, we see this humanity being reaffirmed in Christ. Right? We see Hebrews saying that Jesus has the same Father as us all, the same origin, comes from the same one, that Jesus, and therefore, is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Not ashamed to call us and to be a part of this common humanity. That very same human being in us is in Christ. And so, here in Hebrews, we see, we begin to see the seeds of Christianity's discovery of radical human equality. Uh, Of this, this universal idea of Individuals having inviolable worth and dignity and rights. Because I know it's strange to talk about that as a kind of discovery. That's just kind of how we see the world, 
right? That's the water we drink, that's the air we breathe. But the world does not always work that way or looked at humans that way, right? The ancients, for the ancients, the group, the tribe, the clan, that was for sure the most important thing, and you received your identity there. And they would have not had a concept or been able to stomach the idea of seeing every individual, you know, regardless of race, class, gender, anything as completely full of equality and worth and value. That just, that wasn't a concept that they would have had. And Greco-Roman society was incredibly hierarchical. There was a clear hierarchy from God, king, emperor, all the way down to the very bottom of society, the slaves. And wherever you were on that hierarchy, fate had put you there. And that's where you stayed, no matter how unequal or unjust. It was fate that had put you there. But then Christianity pops up. And in Christianity, there's this strange, what one philosopher called a slave revolt in morality. That in Christianity, the hierarchy starts to shake a little. Because if you think about it, the very top, God, has descended all the way down to the form of a slave in Philippians 2. And the hierarchy begins to shake, and we start to see in human culture this idea of individuals with absolute worth and value and equality. And it's really our modern moral vision that is birthed from this birth of Christianity, really. And what we see as basically just intuitive sprang distinctively from this Christian worldview of a common humanity, of being brothers and sisters together, just as Jesus is one of us. Just as Jesus is not ashamed to be our sibling. And so it's this Jesus that moving into verses 14 and 15, since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. We could preach a series on that couple verses right there. Because when we Western modern Christians talk about Christianity, about what God has done in Christ, we typically start with the problem of sin, and, and that's what Jesus is the solution to, which he absolutely is, and sin is important in Hebrews, it's important to the Christian faith, it's going to be just a couple verses later. But here we're talking in a different mode. Notice that here we're talking a little bit about a different problem, right? The problem here is that Jesus needs to destroy death and the one who has the power of death through his own death and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Jesus comes not just to expunge our sins, although he absolutely does, but he comes to defeat and destroy death and the one who has the power of death the devil. It's that 
it's not just sin. It's that unholy trinity of sin, death, and the devil. And when we talk about the devil, when we talk about Satan, we're talking about an accuser. That's what Satan literally means, to accuse, to slander. The devil is this force of negation in the universe, right? That everything true and good and beautiful that God has made, the devil wants to make false and evil and ugly. He wants to take the life that God has given us, our existence, and turn us back towards death and non-being and nothingness. And Jesus comes to destroy death through death. Jesus comes to set us free from the fear of death and the slavery that it brings. I think humans today, I think many of us are fearful of death, if we're honest with ourselves. Some of us might say we're not and might actually believe we're not. I think many of us still live in ways as if we are afraid of death because we live out of this posture of scarcity, of lack, of needing to get more and more, right? And so I think there are many of us who are fearful of death and there are also many of us who are forgetful of death or forgetful of our fear of death. And we think in our, our pride, in our hubris, that we can keep it under control. We are fearful or we are forgetful of death, but either way we are enslaved to that power of death and the power of the devil. One of the more fascinating books I read this year is a book called Dignity by Chris Arnaud. And Chris was a Wall Street trader, an analyst, in 2007 when the Great Recession hit. And so after the Great Recession hit, he was, you know, he actually has a PhD in like particle physics, um, making lots of money on Wall Street. But after the recession hit, he started to get a little disillusioned, disenchanted with his job. And so he started to do this thing. He would take the subway in New York all the way to the end of the line, and he would walk the length of New York City. And so he would take the subway all the way up, get off in the Bronx, and walk through, and he would walk through Hunts Point, which is a neighborhood that's given to violence and poverty and drug addiction and prostitution. And he began to talk to people, to talk to these flesh and blood people on street corners and often in McDonald's. He spent a lot of time in McDonald's. And eventually he left Hunts Point and he took a tour around the country to other areas that had fallen on hard times, to cities like Gary, Indiana, Selma, Alabama, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And again, he would spend a lot of time in McDonald's talking to these people who had fallen into drug addiction or sex work or all sorts of poverty and issues. And what he eventually started to see as he talked to these real people was that, broadly speaking, America seems to be divided into two kinds of people. Broadly speaking, America seems to be divided into front row kids and back row kids. The front row kids, according to Arnaud, had the good education, 
went to good schools, the best schools, went to the best jobs, the best firms and hospitals and companies, went to the best neighborhoods, have the best school districts, have the best opportunities for their kids. But things are different on back row America. The back row kids have not quite had it that same way. In back row towns, like the ones Arnaud visited, the good jobs have left. The factories have shut down, and in have come drugs, and it's been easy for that to be the escape. And people have fallen into these cycles of addiction and poverty and violence and despair. And there's a fascinating chapter in the book specifically on faith, specifically about religion and religion in the back row kids and religion for Arnaud, who is himself a front row kid. And I just want to read a couple striking paragraphs for you. He says this. He says, like most in the front row, I'm used to thinking we have all the answers. On Wall Street, there were a few problems we couldn't solve with enough smarts, energy, audacity, or money. We even managed to push death into the distance. With enough research and enough resources, eating right, doing the right things, going to the correct medical specialist, the inevitable could be delayed and mortality could feel distant. With a great job and a great apartment and a great neighborhood, it is easy to feel we have nothing for which we need to be absolved. The fundamental fallibility of humans seems outdated, distant, and confined to a few distant others. It's not hard to imagine that you have everything under control. The tragedy of the streets means few can delude themselves into thinking they have it under control. You cannot ignore death there. And you cannot ignore human fallibility. It is easier to see that everyone is a sinner, everyone is fallible, and everyone is mortal. In our pride, we rush to forget death. We rush to delude ourselves into thinking we can control its havoc, its turmoil. And inevitably what we must do in order to forget death is to forget those who cannot forget death. Inevitably what we have to do to forget death and our fear of it is forget those who have no choice but to fear it. And it's amazing to me that Jesus doesn't come as a front row kid. Jesus comes as a back row kid. Jesus comes as an itinerant peasant, as a humble baby. He comes in the form of a slave. And yet he comes for the front row kids and the back row kids. When you look at who he spends time with, he comes for all of us and he comes He says the healthy don't need a doctor, the sick need a doctor, but the thing is the healthy are sicker than they think. And so Jesus comes for the fearful and he comes for the forgetful. He comes for the foolhardy and the forgotten. And he comes as a human being, as our sibling, as our brother as our common humanity. 
and, and he is not a God who is far removed and unaware of your plight. He is in the midst of it. He is not someone far away and distant. He is with you in the thick of it. And Jesus knows what you suffer. He has suffered it and he's overcome. And he's fought that very fight that you're fighting. And Jesus is the one who has decisively won on the cross and in the resurrection. Jesus defeats that unholy trinity of sin, death, and the devil. Every force of negation, every force of accusation and slander and lies, Jesus defeats in the cross and the resurrection and establishes a common humanity of individuals, of groups, of people with dignity, of people with value, because they're made in the image of God, and that image is reflected perfectly in Jesus Christ. If you want to experience that loving freedom, that gracious faithfulness, I invite you to begin worshiping Jesus Christ as we stand and praise Him together.